0: Hello everyone, Marshall Poe here. I'm the founder of the New Books Network. First of all, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for listening to the network. We're glad you enjoy the interviews we produce. Thanks to your generous patronage, the NBN has grown very large. We've published 4,200 interviews and we issue 100 new ones every month. You, our listeners, download about 25,000 interviews every day, yes, that's right, 25,000. Now here's the rub. As we've grown, our costs have increased. So, in order to continue to do what we do, we need your support. Please consider making a donation to the NBN. We're a nonprofit, so your contribution will be tax deductible. Making a donation is easy to do. Just go to the NBN at newbooksnetwork.com and click the Support the NBN button. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the following interview. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm your host, Ian Shin. Today on our podcast, we have Professor Jason Oliver Chang speaking about his new book, Chino, Anti-Chinese Racism in Mexico, 1880-1940, to 1940, recently published in 2017 by the University of Illinois Press. Jason is Assistant Professor of History and Asian American Studies at the University of Connecticut, where he specializes in Asian American history, comparative ethnic studies, and modern Mexico. Jason received his PhD from the Department of Ethnic Studies at UC Berkeley, as well as an MPA from UMass Amherst. Chino is a rich and compelling book. It traces the evolution of the Chinese in Mexico as disposable laborers, killable subjects, and pernicious defilers, and the uses of those images in cultivating a mestizo nationalism between 1880 and 1940. It's a book that will appeal not only to scholars and students of Asian American studies, But also Latin American history and critical race studies. I really enjoyed reading the book and speaking about it with Jason, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm Ian Shin, the host of the channel. Today, my guest is Jason Oliver Chang, and we are talking with him about his new book, Chino, Anti-Chinese Racism in Mexico, 1880 to 1940, published in 2017, by the University of Illinois Press. Jason is Assistant Professor of History and Asian American Studies at the University of Connecticut, where he also serves as a faculty affiliate in the Institute of Latina, Latino, Caribbean, and Latin American Studies. Jason, welcome to the show. Hello, Ian. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to be here. Great to have you. Um, Jason, I wondered if we could start the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, So, and i lived there uh all through uh growing up um we often spend summers in hawaii with my family with my dad's side of the family and uh so i had these two uh kind of places where i'm from they're really different <laughs> and uh, uh by the time i left high school i really wanted to go uh to get out of indiana uh did a uh my bachelor's uh, degree at Prescott College, this uh, little uh, hippie crunchy college in Arizona. Um, but what was great about it was that I did seventy-five percent of my coursework in field studies. So um, that was the place where I fell in love with the U.S.-Mexico border and uh, and Latin American studies, Chicano studies. And um, you know, from there, I kind of uh, I didn't really know how. I wanted to apply, you know, my my understanding of the world. I felt like I needed uh, more training, more. Uh, I wanted to dig deeper into questions of border militarization and immigration policy. And from there, I I got a master's in public policy at UMass Amherst, and I focused on um, immigration enforcement and um, and the intersection of incarceration. And uh, and border militarization. Um, so from there, I, I I wanted to ask other questions that the policy world wasn't really interested in. Um, I wanted to know more about the history of the borderlands, and um, a master's program wasn't you know wasn't going to be a good place for that. Uh, so I applied for uh, PhD uh, work in ethnic studies uh UC Berkeley um and that was where i really you know i i i i discovered uh, the chinese presence in mexico and i thought to myself how can i you know uh study this place this region for so long and not know the presence of these folks here um and so i feel like the project kind of found me in a way um and as I was uh as I was researching, you know, uh, the questions just kept on being um uh met with you know more uh more questions. And so it was a really rich topic that uh, you know really helped me to uh kind of think expansively about ethnic studies outside of the US or you know, what's portable, what's you know, uh what are the some of the core concerns that can ask of other places. What is, um,
0: what was the reasoning behind choosing ethnic studies as your field of graduate study versus say um, history uh, in particular, given your interest in the history of borderlands?
1: Oh yeah, that's a good question. Well, um, you know, when, when I was doing the, uh, the master's in public policy, um, while I, was looking at history books, it was the scholars in Chicano studies, the scholars in asian american studies uh, who were asking the kinds of questions that i i i I wanted to participate in that conversation um, and uh well there are numerous histories that I relied on from scholars from you know without uh, an ethnic studies affiliation um, the The approaches and the historiography from these uh from ethics studies scholars really spoke to um the kind of crisis I was seeing in the borderlands and um and so it was like a, a, um, I saw a kind of intellectual genealogy that was uh, that i i i wanted to learn from and um Uh, you know, actually, I'm just remembering now, I think there was also uh, there was the book uh, Color Lines and Borderlands. I think it's an edited volume about uh, about ethnic studies as an institution. I remember reading that in my master's program and thinking, you know, these uh, the intellectual questions, the scholarly questions we ask are are uh, reflected in the institutions. And you know the struggle for the institutional space of ethnic studies was also a part of of creating the institutions to develop these these intellectual projects so i was i was really attracted to that too
0: right yeah and i i think one of the things that came through in the book um as we'll talk about later is the way in which you so beautifully incorporate a range of different sources and i think sometimes you know speaking as a historian um, you know, I, I will say maybe the field can be a little bit, you know, uh, conservative, small C conservative in terms of the kinds of sources that we engage in, uh, and, and you do that you do that so beautifully in Chino and in, in looking at photographs and paintings, uh, in addition to some of the uh, more traditional uh, documentary sources that historians like to use uh, in crafting these kinds of histories. Um, so I'd love to you know, talk about that uh, in a little bit with you uh, in terms of your sources and your methodology. But perhaps we can start, because I think you've already led us into um, the the background of ethnic studies as uh, a crucial part of, of how you approach this project. I I figured maybe we can just dive right into the introduction um, and to talk a little bit about some of the frameworks and interventions that you see yourself making. Um, and, and you repeat uh, many times in the book um, the idea that you are making uh, an Asian Americanist critique um, in 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 uh, Mexican history. So I wonder if you could start us off by telling us a little bit about how you see that critique. Um, what what do you see as the value of an Asian Americanist intervention in this particular history?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. You know, it really uh, animated the uh, the research I was doing, and um, you know, eventually when I got to the point where I was writing chapters and uh, trying to make sense of the source material. Um, you know, I found, uh, my training in, in, um, uh, in Asian American studies and ethnic studies to be, uh, to, to lead me to other kinds of questions, um, uh, about say like the relationship between, uh, the, the racial formations of indigenous folks in Mexico and how that intersected with chinismo um, uh, which, yeah, you know, face value doesn't seem to be related, um, but because I come from an understanding of racial formations as being, you know, intersubjective and linked at a structural level, you know, I I started exploring other questions like how might these be related? What are the threads I can pull on to see? You know what sources might speak to that, and um, and so you know thinking about it, it um, actually, you know my um, I came to a realization about the uh, an Asian Americanist critique in like a, one like major revision of the manuscript because there was an earlier version where I, I wrote it as. Uh, an intervention primarily in Mexican history, and um, and reading through it again at at a, at a moment when I was you know deeply reflective about the the core concerns of the book, um, I I came back to uh, some of the, the the core questions in Asian American studies, uh, which is you know what is the racial function of orient- or what is the political function of Orientalism, At what purpose does it serve, what, um, what are the intentions of Orientalist actors, um, what problems does it seek to resolve? And I think to me that was a useful framing for uh, asking these sort of deeper questions about uh, what racism looks like in another place. Um, and Asian American studies has always been situated as a complication of a black white binary in the U S and while that's, you know, not exactly, that's not something to use as a cookie cutter to understand every other place in the world. But the, the understanding that, uh, that Asian racial difference fits within these other dominant frames of um, of racial authority was uh, was like an aha moment for me where I could kind of see through the sources and see, and see another narrative um, and and see the relevance and the the insight of uh, you know this this body of of scholarship I had spent years studying. Uh, took on, uh, took on new meaning for me.
0: Right, and I I think all of our listeners will will find the same too, because certainly speaking as somebody whose Asian Americanist training has very much focused on the U.S. context, um, this was a very exciting book for me to read, and I, I learned quite a lot from it. Um, but I think as you as you talk about too, right, that this is in the introduction, this is part of a larger body of scholarship where people have looked at hemispheric Asian American or Asian Orientalism uh, and, and uh, belongs to a, a larger and even you know, sort of growing, uh, recently growing body of literature on uh, Asian American history uh, in Cuba and in Mexico and other places uh, outside, again, of the US, uh, in Canada, certainly. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you see Asian American historiography? uh, in the context of these, um, directions in which it's moving outside of the U S context, but still, uh, uh, sticking to sort of an Asian American framework.
1: Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think this, the hemispheric turn, if we could say that that's happening or that's a thing, or, you know, people are participating in it. I think it's, it's linked to, uh, you know, the, the other work that folks are doing in transnationalism, um, you know, I'm thinking of other uh, historians who are uh, who are using, you know, uh, 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 source material in Asian languages, uh, sort archives in Asia uh, to inform, you know, the U.S. context or to identify these, uh, you know, uh, new dimensions of transnational actors. Um, you know, that's that's an exciting you know, direction and, um, and it really goes back to the foundations of diaspora in, in the field uh, and really enriches that, that study. Uh, and I, so I think, you know, the hemisphere is a part of that transnational field and using those same kinds of frames of, uh, uh, you know, like I, I think of Ichiro Zuma's uh, Between Two Empires, you know, it's like thinking about, uh, the incommensurability of two racial systems you know, and how uh, migrants are you know uh, uh, migrating peoples are you know, it, implicated in both of those systems uh, and have to negotiate those you know the 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 overlapping uh, jurisdictions of these racial states um, and and so I think you know uh, with that in mind there's a need to—I mean, there's there's a, a pitfall of, you know, exporting a, a kind of um, a, a U.S.-centric understanding of racial politics to other places in order to accommodate these other environments, these other um, uh, uh, territories, these non-U.S. spaces, um, and. So I think you know for me the the struggle was to uh, was to try to uh develop you know show the historical endemic process of you know of like racial hegemony that that what you know even though there's you know orientalist discourses like circulated globally, it's super easy to find you know, racial language in the archive, right? But the trick was to see, well, what, how were these words being deployed? What meanings were being imparted to them? Uh, what, um, you know, histories were they relying on in order to convey the authority that they, you know, that we read them with? Um, so I I think part of it was uh, trying to uh, distill, you know, work done in the U.S. and also kind of um, take a very measured and and skeptical approach to uh, to reading sources um, outside of the U.S.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's a really important, as you sort of put it, a kind of one-two punch, right? That there is. <laughs> Recognizing the the, the transnational the, the transnational turn in Asian American history, in Asian American studies, to sort of pair that with an in depth localized or national understanding of how these phenomena then play out uh, within specific contexts, um, and and you do that so richly in the case of Mexico, um, while still you know and and we see glimpses of uh, uh, again transnational uh, you know currents. Um, uh, Foreign relations, uh, um, that that uh, appear in in the book, uh, but that you you are it's so sort of deeply um, uh, focused on on the Mexican story that we really are able to get that level of detail. So maybe with that we can turn to um, the the chapters themselves uh, to really get a sense of the richness of this research. Um, The first chapter in the book is the politics of Chinese immigration in the era of Mexican national colonization. And I wonder if you can start us off by talking about, uh, for those listeners who, again, maybe like me, approach Asian American history or Asian American studies from more of a U.S.-based context, you know, the book begins in the late 19th century, around 1870s, 1880s. Um, What is the picture uh, that people should have in terms of uh, the background for Chinese immigration, to Mexico in the late 19th century? And, and for example, how do we begin to start thinking about it in the context of what you call Mexico's quote-unquote Indian problem? So how are those things right. uh, related in, in the late 19th century?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, so this period the, where the Chinese are entering uh, in greater numbers than they have before uh, in Mexico uh, happens after a long period of Uh, of civil war, uh, foreign intervention in Mexico, uh, enormous instability. Uh, they lost the war with the U S lost half of the country, uh, their uh, Northern, their, their Northern territories. Um, so Mexico as a Republic, as a, as a political, uh, project has been just, uh, um, uh, very unstable and, uh, and not able to participate or, you know, kind of organize itself to, to, um, uh, uh, to be a part of what, you know, what other nations were aspiring to with you know, modernization. Um, this all changes in the 70, 1870s, 1880s with the rise of Porfirio Diaz, who's a dictator, or it was a general who becomes an authoritarian uh, 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 leader in Mexico and for the first time provide some political stability for, uh, for an aggressive uh, campaign for modernization. And whereas, you know, so Mexico's history um, actually, you know, is, is very intimately tied with the rise of globalization. Um, the Spanish empires, uh, you know, uh, New Spain colony, was the center of global commerce, bringing in uh, trade from uh, Philippines and, and East Asia, uh, and then circulating uh, that with, uh, with commerce from, uh, from Europe and across the Atlantic. Uh, and there has always been an intellectual uh, and political assertion that Mexico was a part of the, this central part of globalization. And during this period, there was this time in the 1870s, 1880s. There was this time where they thought, well, we're going to uh, we're going to modernize and reestablish our position as as a, you know, the crossroads of of global commerce. But they needed to do some serious development. They needed railroads. They thought about built you know, digging a canal ca- across the isthmus. Uh, they wanted to, uh, to develop their ports, and they knew that they had supplied uh, the world's empires with silver for the last several hundred years. Uh, they knew they had the mineral wealth, the, the natural resources to be you know, a developed, strong country. They rationalized this deficiency by saying, well, we, we simply don't have enough white people. We have too many Indians. They don't know how to modernize. They're unreliable. And that's what explains why Mexico is not higher up on the ladder of development. And uh, so, you know, Mexican officials and politicians looked around the world, looked around at other colonies around the world, said, well, other places are developing very quickly. With and you know developing capitalist industrial economies, and they saw how people were using coolies, how people were using uh, enslaved Africans, right So there were a number of they looked at the colonial world as a kind of uh, laboratory uh, at, for development schemes. And uh, the Chinese were, um, were a second or third choice. Um, they tried recruiting many different ethnic groups from uh, from Europe. Um, they uh, saw some benefits of incorporating other uh, other African laborers, um, but one of the things that defined the attractiveness of Chinese workers for industrialists for policymakers in Mexico at this time was that the Chinese could be disposable. That hired you know um uh, contracted laborers could be hired for work and then uh sent back or let go uh whatever whatever happened after the job was you know was an out, was was not important to them because they they considered them um uh to be uh, uh uh disposable um and this is where the term motores de sangre come
0: in right or or uh so can you maybe say a little bit about because that term we're now verging into chapter 2 territory um but I I I hadn't been familiar with that term um uh so can you talk a little bit about what um what it motores de sangre means and and uh what work it does in the context of Mexican history during this period
1: Yeah yeah so um motores de sangre is uh, Spanish for I mean the direct translation is like blood engine uh, and that's what the, uh, 19th century agronomists and other economists, other, uh, uh, industrial thinkers, uh, consider for, uh, a label for draft animals, right? So these were, um, uh, these were, uh, like, uh, mechanisms of force that could be directed and employed for different kinds of, of, um, uh, Uh, different kinds of jobs, whether it be, uh, plowing fields, uh, digging ditches. These were the, the engines of labor, basically. Um, and so, uh, this was an attractive idea because, uh, as Mexican, um, officials were planning out how to, you know, how to get railroads built, uh, these were simply um, uh, you know sort of uh, discrete uh, labor inputs that had they did not have to consider uh, or they, they didn't think they had to consider uh, 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 other social implications or uh, or you know, provide for their well-being in any other fashion. Uh, these were simply you know a means to, uh, to uh, building infrastructure. Um, and this was, this was a successful idea, uh, in part because the U S was doing the exact opposite at the time. Um, had the U had the United States not passed the Chinese exclusion Act in the 1880s, it's, it's unclear whether there would have been significant Chinese labor for the projects that they, that they, um, uh, that they wanted the u s would have been a much more attractive place to go to uh, so by closing the doors to uh to chinese migration to legitimate you know uh, authorized uh you know Chinese migration in eighteen eighty two uh, it fed it fueled the demand for labor uh in in mexico um, this is a time when when mexico is passing. Colonization laws, national colonization laws, where they would uh, identify territories, uh, you know, spaces in the in in the republic, territories that needed um, uh, that were essential to certain infrastructure, to linking uh, different areas from uh, production to uh, to export, and uh, and they would basically uh, accept bids from companies, from individuals. Uh, and uh, contract out development to these other companies and many of them would identify uh, Chinese labor as a you know as a part of the contract
0: right and the the way that you just talked about uh, how motores de sangre uh, appear to uh, officials as you know sort of a form of labor where they don't need to worry about um, their sort of other social implications. One of the things that I, I love about how you write, the book is while there is a very strong focus on the sort of political and intellectual history of anti-Chinese racism, you also pay attention to the ways in which they uh, sort of uh, strike out on their own and and live their own lives. So in chapter two, you write about how they, um, and I'm quoting you here, defy dominant characterizations as disinterested sojourners or motores de sangre by forming relationships with indigenous women in Sonora in particular. So I wondered if you could you know against this sort of trope of the motore the, the motor de sangre i guess in uh, in in singular form um against that trope how do uh chinese migrants uh during this period i guess this would be during the the Porfiriato, how did they uh, mm-hmm. begin to establish their own agency in their lives uh, which i think you uh you sort of point to in various parts
1: of the book yeah yeah um yeah this was uh this was a, a a difficult area to to research to find their voices and and interpret their actions you know sometimes as historians we only have you know traces of the choices that they made by virtue of certain kinds of you know documentation and and uh so it's very difficult to find uh you know the 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 ways that uh, uh the the social lives of these individuals uh, but you know to me it it became uh important to to spell these these um, uh, to try to address this question because of the nature of the racial project at hand um, One of the things that I noticed about this was that these were elite notions of Chinese racial difference right these were urban uh mexico city um, uh you know uh, often criollo who are you know white um uh, uh mexicans who are they're the power elite right they're industrialists and while those ideologies and discourses shaped the um uh, the demand and the recruitment of these individuals it didn't actually trans translate into say like a popular understanding of who the Chinese were on the ground in these places, you know? So, um, uh, so like when, when the Chinese would go and work on railroads and then, you know, they would, uh, you know, they'd finish a section or they would, uh, the, the project would be over. They would, you know, go and look for other work, uh, or, um, uh, you know, uh, find other places to settle. Um, the people around them didn't think of them as motores de sangre right so uh i mean some kind of thought you know there there was there's a, a a notion of labor competition in some respects but also you know at this time before the revolution most peasants were excluded from from citizenship from active and real any any real kind of political participation so the notion that that other that Mexican people were um, already had a national identity that that kept them that created distance from the Chinese you know that I didn't really see that in the sources right so uh and and so I think while on the one hand there is this this racial project of defining the Chinese as motores de sangre that brings them there, but it doesn't ultimately shape how they're living their lives um, and indeed, because of their the exploitive nature of their work and the remoteness of the places where they were, the people they ended up encountering you know were you know one had a contentious relationship with being Mexican and two may have, faith, may have, you know, done similar work in the past. And so maybe saw them as, uh, as being sim more like them than different. Um, seeing as a majority of the men were, uh, a majority of the migrants were men, you know, the, uh, the intimacy with, uh, with indigenous women was, uh, was, was, was going to happen. Um, and that, that, that coincided with a, a pretty intense um, anti-Indian politics in the places where they where they were were located.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to to emphasize to folks who are listening that I mean that is one of the central arguments of your book, where you talk about the fact that oftentimes interpretations of this period stress or assume almost a pre-existence of a mestizo national identity, right? And that that's what explains right. yeah. uh, anti-Chinese racism. But in fact, you show uh, in, in such detail that that mestizo nationalism actually grows up uh, in conjunction with or because of uh, anti-Chinese racism, that that's the sort of instrument through which that mestizo national identity takes shape uh, after the revolution. Right. Um Maybe leading us to that is my next question, which is, you know, by the end of chapter two, I think as we go into chapter three, you see the emergence of this idea of self-colonization. And uh, colonization is yeah. a word that you've already used, um, uh, and and uh, particular to this idea of self-colonization is, and again, I'm quoting you here, the Mexican uh peasant was beginning to be considered as an agent of modernization which of course is different from the way that as you've talked about before uh peasants were seen uh earlier right. so how did this self-colonization movement uh and policy come about uh during this period
1: yeah yeah so this was there, there you know in this phase of modernization you know me, there were many officials who are frustrated by the lack of of uh progress and they wanted to see, you know, things moving in a different direction. Um, and so there, there essentially became what what I saw as two camps uh, in uh, of political elites. One were kind of like technocratic industrialists that saw the Chinese as the answer and a need for expansion of uh, recruitment of Chinese workers. Uh, and then another that were nativists who saw, well, you know, that that. The Indians may have been poor agents of modernization in the past, but if we uh, if we take them as a um, uh, as a like a pedagogical subject that can be trained and 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 disciplined and brought into and modernized, you know like that would be then we the, if we modernize the Indians themselves, then we will be in a place where, uh, uh, where industrialization will just come naturally. Uh, and so there was, you know, so at, at the center of both of these ideas is the racial, you know, the racial state, right? What is, you know, the, the Mexican state's vision of modernization is through the enactment of these racial projects. And, um, and so while, You know, the the Indian problem was that um, the Indian problem in Mexico, as it was discussed at the time, was that there were uh, there were too many uh, folks who weren't reliable uh, workers. Right. And uh, and that many of them um, did not see each other as um as uh, having having anything in common you know there were uh, hundreds of uh, linguistic ethnic groups and uh you know completely different um uh ethnic identities uh and different regions right so the idea that um uh, that seri in in sonora would have anything uh, in common with huichol and in 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 the south would you know it it is assuming a lot um but nevertheless you know in elite politics they thought that indians were all the same uh and um and so you know uniting them in a project of modernization was uh was also uh you know an immense national uh uh uh, an immense project of both nation building and state building um, and so the the when the Chinese are thought of as a solution to that problem, it really brings together the the core concerns the core crises of the mexican state uh, the 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 problem of legitimacy the um, the coherence of the republic uh the meaning of of sovereignty, uh, the, the, the relationship of uh, contentious sovereignty between um, indigenous republics and, and the Mexican state. Um, and because the Chinese were thought of as a solution to this, the meaning of their racial difference went right to the heart of, of, of these crises and continued to animate them.
0: And and when we see that uh, begin to resolve itself in violent ways, which is the subject of chapter three, violent imaginaries and the beginnings of a new right. state, um, you you look at mass killings, tactical assassinations, and other kinds of violent rituals against the Chinese in the 19 teens, and you use you introduce the term grotesque assemblies. Um, I wondered if you could uh, sort of explain to our listeners you know, sort of how you think about this concept uh, of a grotesque assembly.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh okay, so the, this chapter, you know, my main goal with this chapter was to uh to dispel the mythology that uh that the Chinese were despised and um, uh, and killed because they were perceived as being outside of the mestizo nation, mm-hmm. right? Uh and this was to me the everything in the source material was showing me that one, no one was no one was claiming to be mestizo, and two, that there were all these other factors that were much more compelling um, and that uh, that actually tied in a lot of the historical discontent and aggression um both between Indians and the state. And between Indians and other mexicans um, and and so um in thinking about those those relationships um, you know I, I first was able to identify uh the ways that anti Chinese violence during the revolution itself uh from like nineteen ten to nineteen twenty basically uh, was was organized primarily by anti-Porphyrian sentiment, right? Many people saw the Chinese as this kind of residue of the old regime. And that through killing the Chinese, through getting rid of Chinatowns in their in their communities wherever they found them, that that was one way of envisioning a New Mexico, right? Uh, because they were such a you know a, a visible part of the Porphyrian era. Um and they were a part of almost every modernization project, and so wherever they were they were wherever they were seen they were seen as uh that this was a sign that the uh of the of the porphyrian government um, and and in looking at these kinds of violence, I began to you know read this other literature about um uh, like homicidal ideation, like why do people imagine killing other people like what where what again, what kind of uh problem does that violence seek to resolve um, and 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 kind of playing around with these ideas and seeing how they related if they stuck, if they were relevant, um, it made me think about the social significance of of violence as um as a way that uh that in, in which uh people participate in violence at, by imagining something else uh by imagining some future uh that does not yet exist um and and that you know to as I was you know reading this literature reading the source material it it you know i i began to think along the lines of like imagined communities. Right. And that um, across Mexico, people that had very little in common beforehand were cooperating, working together in the expulsion of Chinese from their towns or uh, rounding up Chinese, murdering them in the streets, Um, that this was a form of imagined community. Um, But I didn't uh, you know, it seemed. uh, it didn't seem appropriate to use that in this fashion. And, and, um, and so I, I I was thinking of grotesque assembly as a way to get at this, um, this, uh, terrible expression of, of collectivity, um, but nevertheless, recognizing its social significance, uh, with, uh, In the context of revolution and the disruption of of ethnic boundaries, racial boundaries that were that were there for decades, you know, if not more, Um, and because I wanted to give that historical moment its um, you know the 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 meaning and the significance that it deserves, uh, while also recognizing that these were These were uh, terrible uh, events. Yeah, and
0: I think it's important to note too, or or what I found really insightful was, you know, aside from the sort of strong symbolic uh, significance of attacking the Chinese, um, and I I love the way that you uh, sort of write about this in a quote where you say that envisioning anti-Chinese violence was a social experience. Uh, When eyes Mm -hmm. were transfixed on the spectacle of anti-Chinese violence, men and women stood shoulder to shoulder class divisions evaporated and inter-ethnic tensions dissolved, right? We really get a sense of the sort of symbolic significance of that. I think the other insight that I found from this chapter is, and and at first I was kind of struggling with your use of the word assassination, but it made made much more sense when I understood it as also a a strategic intervention, that there was a real sort of economic uh, advantage to attacking, for example, Chinese businesses whom they understood to be in cahoots with, uh, you know, the Porphyrian elites, uh, for example, um, that that was sort of taking resources away from that armed struggle that they were engaged in. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. The
0: the other uh, question that I um, have for you about this chapter, I think, goes back to the the, the homicidal ideation. I th- was that the literature that that sounds by the way like a really difficult <laughs> literature to, to get through? Um,
1: yeah, yeah, it, it it's true. <laughs> I mean, psychology and uh, other. You know, uh, uh, other disciplines have explored this. Yeah, uh, 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 criminology. Uh, so, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, so
0: I was going to ask whether there's a distinction between the fact that violence happens or homicidal violence happens, and the, the intensity of that violence, right? Whether because I was reading, you know, sort of right. through through some of the examples you provided, and you write about how many Chinese residents suffer really grisly deaths, being dragged into the street, butchered with knives, and butchered with hatchets you know mm-hmm. so is there is there a difference between uh you know just sort of being anti you know the how can we explain essentially the intensity of that uh, uh of that yeah. violence yeah. and and you know how does that tell us uh about the the depth of um the the nationalist sentiments that people are experiencing during this time
1: mhm yes yes uh so it uh the, the techniques of violence deployed in the revolution uh are not new in Mexico. These uh, uh this level of brutality uh is and it has been practiced uh on the indigenous population uh since you know the, the founding of the Republic in uh the early nineteenth century um and even the Spanish wars against the uh, against rebellious Indian republics, uh, before that, for the centuries prior to that. Um, and it, you know, so violence, uh, is, and it, violence was a part of these communities and, um, largely because of state driven, uh, projects of, you know, employing one group against another, um, uh, legitimizing one group's claims over another group's claims uh and um, you know it deploying violence uh was one way of gaining uh legitimacy in a world where uh where the the state you know would uh, might not recognize your rights at all um, so you know i i i didn't develop that argument very well in in uh in this book um but there's a lot of literature about uh the Indian wars in Mexico and um uh the level of brutality uh practiced and so i think you know while on the one hand we kind of treat the revolution as a kind of uh modern battlefield um you know it's the violence being deployed there is uh, it, it is very old, and uh, in this case here, we see it deployed with, um, you know, uh, against you know different subjects, and and I think, you know, it's a part of claiming authority. It's a part of uh, expressing discontent um, with you know institutions that have denied the, you know, denied the the existence and the participation of, you know, the majority of the Republic for the last hundred years. Right. Um, I'd love to talk more about that, but I think
0: we better move on to, to the fourth chapter because that'll, that'll oh, yeah, sort sure. of help us progress to, um, the rest of the story, and, and chapter four, which is uh, Abajo Los Chinos, the political invention of mestizo nationalism, is really about the institutionalization right. of the racial scripts that, are, that come out of these grotesque assemblies you write about in chapter three. And you know there's so much in here, yeah. and I want to talk about all of it with you, especially all these civic societies that pressure local, state, and federal officials. Mm. But I, I think what I want to ask you about is actually um, uh, about gender and sexuality. Because you you talk about how yeah. central of a role yeah. it is uh, in the anti-Chinismo that begins to get institutionalized in post-revolutionary Mexico. So what is the significance of, of female biological and social reproduction during this period? And in particular, how do mm-hmm. we also um, uh, understand that in contrast to the Chineras, right? So you write about Mexican women who, who marry Chinese men and they're ashamed. Right. So, again, it seems like there is sort of this tension of an emphasis on female biological and social reproduction, but you also see, uh, you know, uh, Mexican women who have married Chinese men. So obviously not everybody buys into this ideology. So can you talk a little bit about uh, gender and sexuality um, in in chapter four?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So yeah, this this was one of the chapters that I probably revised the most uh, because, uh, you know, trying to mark this transition from the streets to, uh, you know, st- uh, violence, um, and, and then, uh, the transformation from that to a meeting hall, to institutions, to, uh, to the, the development of, of organizations that have like racist letterhead, you know, um, that that's, that's a really, you know, that's a really intense transformation. Um, Um, and noting, you know, as I was going through the, uh, the records of different state legislatures in Mexico and seeing when and where anti-Chinistas showed up, I began, I was surprised to see the extent to which Mexican women were, were all across the country. At legislators uh, and uh, campaigning for the adoption of this this three point plan, the, um, uh, the the ending of um, of Chinese migration, uh, the, re- re- uh, the rejection of the Chinese Mexican Treaty, uh, which was established eighteen ninety nine, and and the prevention of of uh, of uh, miscegenation between Chinese men and Mexican women. And these were Mexican women who were out there uh, arguing and getting, uh, trying to convince, uh, legislatures in different states to adopt these, these measures. And, um, and, you know, in thinking about that, I, I, I was trying to put this political behavior in the context of of a new republic right the government had been completely destroyed the state was was completely you know demolished and a new constitution was written in 1917 and this was a completely different government um uh, with new ideals and new rationales for sovereignty. Um, the, the 1917 Constitution creates, for the first time in any constitution, the uh, the basis of sovereignty is on the social rights of its residents. That meant the protection of the indigenous population. And so at this time, we also see the invention of new forms of belonging, new practices of citizenship. Um, and uh, And... There's no set plan for what's what works, what's legitimate, uh, who you know, uh, uh, who's a, 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 um, using authority in you know uh, 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 a valid way. Uh, these were all you know questions that were in flux, and um, and so I look at at. the the campaigns as being a part of this experiment in post-revolutionary citizenship. And and so women were in this unique position where the state was seeking legitimacy and authority, and women were also seeking to be recognized and to have uh, authority as well. The racial question of the Chinese provided both parties with uh, with a rationale for uh, for you know, policy reform for action for uh and, and it was enormously popular it was really popular because it didn't disrupt any of the other power dynamics right it didn't challenge the um uh, the capitalist nature of the revolutionary, of the, the, uh, the inheritors of the revolution. Um, it didn't, uh, didn't challenge male authority. Um, and it was something that, uh, a lot of Mexicans from different corners of the country could agree on. Um, and so when it came time for them to, uh, to argue for their Mexicanness, they were able to use their position as women to argue for this kind of, you know, uh, what we would, you know, we would think of as this kind of Foucauldian uh, uh, discourse of 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 reproduction of the biopolitics of of biological reproduction that they were this linchpin to the future. Nation, right? That the nation would only be uh, be remade through women, Uh, and they. On the one hand, you know, I want to recognize that they were political agents, right? On the other hand, I want to recognize that they're uh, they're operating within a patriarchal world, Um, and and so you know they were as contextualized by the. The choices granted to them uh, and the possibilities of violence on the other side. Um, so, in in kind of trying to feel out those women's participation in these racist campaigns, it also made me think about chinetas too, and how Mexican national identity wasn't wasn't hegemonic at this time, right? It didn't it didn't reach down into every community. Did, Marrying a Chinese man often meant that you lost your uh, your Mexican nationality and you became Chinese by virtue of marrying this uh, foreign-born individual. Uh, so the fact that many women gave that up shows that perhaps they didn't feel like losing Mexican nationality was that big of a loss, right? Uh, so. You know, to me, these were all signals that uh, that state authority and legitimacy were still up for grabs and that uh, nothing uh, except violence was hegemonic at this time.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's one of the um, really nice parts of the book that you you show the contingencies with which this ideology, even as, as it's growing in popularity, is still in flux. And I think one of the points, one of the other points in this chapter that I uh, was very curious about, although we I don't think I have time to talk about it today. Um, is the 1928 failed proposal for a constitutional amendment to restrict Chinese immigration? And you talk, uh, you know, in, right. just very briefly about um, some of the structural, you know, sort of um, economic and political repercussions of adopting an anti-Chinese platform that actually helps to restrain that that movement for a constitutional amendment, right? And and so. I think what's so what 's so uh yeah. interesting about this chapter is how it 's sort of you know two steps forward and one one step back for the anti chinistas um, as, as as they're uh, sort of gathering yeah. in meeting halls but but let's maybe um now that we're we 're um, on the cusp of the 1930s i'd love to talk to you about chapter Five right. and the conclusion, Chapter five forging a racial contract. Um, Where do you sort of bring this home uh, in terms of, as you put it, the growing racial competency of the state, right, that that we really begin to see this sort of coalesce into uh, not just violence and displacement, which continues to happen, but also broad policy measures uh, like the 1930 census, like the federal labor reform and like the creation of the National Mm -hmm. Registry of Foreigners. So can you can you tell us how the story you know, where do you where do you see the story ending? uh and, and and uh where does anti-chinismo get us um ultimately by the nineteen thirties in mexico
1: yeah yeah that's a great questions yeah so um so if the previous chapter was about how how anti-chinismo eventually you know became a part of you know, like, you know, many grassroots organizations across the country and eventually Became a part of the dominant political party, the Partido Nacional Revolucionario. Uh, then, this last chapter, the, the chapter five, is about how anti chinismo went from Mexico City out outward, and um, and and began to structure different kinds of policies, different rationales uh, for uh, for state making. Um, and, you know, this is the chapter, too, where um, where I really struggled with uh, it, with how to write about the relationship between um, uh, anti-Indian sentiment on the one hand and anti-Chinismo on the other. Um, and this was... This is where I, I kind of applied the lessons from the last chapter to say, well, okay, um, anti-Chinismo might have been the, the most you know, successful grassroots organization at the time. Uh, and they were able to argue for their legitimacy on the basis of the new constitution, more effectively than anyone else at the time was arguing for a common good, right? No, uh, other, other contenders for power were arguing for uh, their, you know, their, their veteran status as leaders of the revolution uh, or as industrialists, uh, uh, that these were, uh, these were political bosses that were trying to maintain power. Whereas anti-chinistas, they were the ones who were actually only interested in the public good, right? So their their ability to use that discourse uh, and to identify with these core assertions of the revolutionary state uh, was sort of unmatched. No one else was really talking in these in these ways, um, and and so uh, this was you know I, I try to capture this in uh in looking at uh the uh, the nineteen twenty nine uh, presidential election um and it, it, you know this is between uh, you know a state endorsed uh uh candidate and and then another really famous uh, uh mexican actor his name is jose vasconcelos who's often attributed with this uh the the popularity of mestizo nationalism at this time uh and and well, you know vesconcelos loses right he's also uh you know there it's it, it it's not really clear like uh how how uh how fair the election was or you know uh that it it most certainly didn't represent the whole republic um but nevertheless he lost on uh, on this platform of uh of uh um national evolution um but what won the the, the discourse that the p n r used in the in the victory was that was that while uh Vasconcelos might have been about uh, uh mestizaje, this was an unstructured and undisciplined you know kind of um uh, uh romantic vision of mestizaje, whereas the p n r was going to organize mestizaje uh race mixing miscegenation as um, as a state building nation building project, and this was this was this has been the goal of anti-chinistas since you know the 1920s since the beginning of the decade uh, so when this argument comes around anti-chinistas are very well positioned to act on this, become policy leaders, become leaders in Congress uh, and very effectively are able to turn turn uh uh, policy areas, uh, uh, from diverse as uh, nationality uh, and uh, public health, uh, labor politics, all of these things into uh, a national platform of, um, you know, like a policy platform uh, for the party, and, um, and and so this was uh, this was a, a new way of um, of kind of mobilizing a national identity that didn't previously exist.
0: It's it, there's so much in the book and I really wish we had more time to to talk about it, you know, I really wanted to to ask you about the role of eugenics, uh which also comes in in this chapter, yeah. but also, you know, some of the glimpses of again resistance um uh you know with some of the uh, folks who who did uh risk their lives to save Ch- their Chinese neighbors. Uh, whether there's sort of a pro chinista uh, kind of movement that we can also talk about but it's it's um, it's a it's a really rich book um, about racialized statecraft um, um, that I, I hope our listeners will dig into um, uh, on their own um, We've taken up so much of your time, but I wonder before we finish the interview, um, I wondered if you could tell us what you're working on now. Uh what is your current project and uh and when uh perhaps when can we look forward to uh to seeing your next piece of work?
1: <laughs> oh yeah. So uh actually my, my, my most current project right now is was building some cabinets. Uh so that that uh that's that's been uh, uh carpentry has been a nice uh uh, reprieve, a reprieve, a sort of post-book, post-Chino uh, um, uh, way of, of getting back my uh, 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 my uh, my life. Uh, but in, in terms of the research, what I've been really uh, digging into lately has been uh, 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 a look at mariners, at Chinese, uh, at, at Asian sailors. Um, And this occurred to me uh, in doing some of the research for China, where I would find um, a lot of anxiety in Mexico about um, about sailors, about Asian sailors, and uh, uh, their uh, their mobility. uh, But then also that you know occasionally uh, Mexican industrialists were interested in in building uh, their own steamship companies, and that they would possibly need uh, Chinese or asian sailors to uh to uh to crew the boats um and and so as i started thinking about this i was i was realizing that you know um uh, much of asian american history is driven by uh by the politics of the people who got off of the boats um you know our our field is uh is you know necessarily structured by the the denied belonging of these individuals, um, but there were also uh, thousands of other people who did not get off the boats, but which made these voyages possible. And so, thinking about that kind of blind spot in the field really uh, uh, gave me pause to think about well, what are the other uh, what are the other political you know aspirations of these people that don't Get engaged in this narrative of denied belonging. Sail these sailors weren't interested in acquiring U.S. citizenship, uh, but nevertheless, were a part of uh, uh, the U.S. merchant fleet. Uh, were a part of uh, the steamship companies, uh, and indeed, you know, deeper examination, we see that there's you know a, a dependency upon uh, these um, these Asian sailors. Uh, so i I started looking into uh, maritime history and thinking about um, uh, the tr- maritime traditions in Asia and their relationships with empire, and how that picture came to inform how they how they encountered the United States in the nineteenth century.
0: That's fascinating. And I, I love the way you're positioning that and framing that as a project about the people who don't get off the boat. Um,
1: uh, right, yeah. I
0: think maybe you could, maybe there's a, a TV show down the line you can make that's fresh on the boat, uh, rather than fresh, fresh, <laughs> fresh off the boat. Um, but, but with that that's terrible, right. with that terrible right. joke, um, I wanna thank you for, for being on the show today, Jason. It was a really a pr- pleasure to talk to you about Chino, um, uh, about your new book. Uh, and uh, I really enjoyed having a chance to read it so uh thank you again
1: oh ian th- it's my pleasure and uh, you know I I love this podcast and it's been really awesome to uh to hear your thoughts on the on the book and uh uh so thank you for that too. take care
0: that was my conversation with Jason Oliver Chang speaking about his new book Chino Anti-Chinese Racism in Mexico 1880 to 1940, published in 2017 by the University of Illinois Press. This is New Books in Asian American Studies, and I'm your host, Ian Shin. Thanks for listening.